Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation 20. We'll look at the end of that chapter, or the text is right there on your screen for you if you're following along. Uh, um, in our Gospel reading from uh, last week, uh, which was Matthew 12, in verse 30, uh, we heard Jesus say, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus, when he said that, he'd been doing battle against the devil. Uh, He'd been casting out demons. That was part of that passage we looked at a little bit last week. He uh, was delivering and healing people who needed his help. And then certain very religious people came along, uh, slandering him and setting themselves up in opposition to him, against him. So Jesus highlighted the the fact, the simple fact, should be obvious, that uh, here, if, if the devil was fighting Jesus... And these people were fighting Jesus, then these people were on the devil's side in his war against Jesus, in his war against God. Um, and so you, two categories, right? Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me and work with me, he scatters, he works against me. <clears throat> so, so you've probably heard a lot of profound statements uh, that start with the phrase, there are only two kinds of people in the world, right? Um, profound things. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There's there's dog people and there's cat people. Or uh, um, there's people you drink with and there's people who make you want to drink. Or uh, uh, Ransom's favorite t-shirt now. Uh, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who can ex- extrapolate from incomplete data. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, Jesus is essentially saying there are only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, he says, there, there are those who are with me, and there are those who are against me. This is not a false dichotomy, right? The true fundamental dichotomy is, uh, is between those who are at war with God and those who are at peace with God through their relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the fulcrum of all reality. He's the point where all lines intersect. He's the one with whom every single one of us has to do, whether a person knows it or not, whether a person thinks it's a fair arrangement or not. Jesus believes this and Jesus proclaims this as the true judgment of God. It's the good and righteous judgment of God. And our passage says uh, that there will come a day, and we think maybe soon, when all of humanity will shake out distinctly into these two unmistakable groups, those who are with Jesus and those who are against him and his people. And on that day, those who are against Jesus will meet their fate and it will be the same fate that's reserved for the devil himself. So uh, that's what our passage is about. Let's, let's consider what God has to say to us about this. Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, rather than allow your word to judge us, we automatically judge your word and become its critics. Um, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would change that about us. That you would change us from the inside out. Help us to submit ourselves to you, to your word, to your judgment, which is true freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 20, starting in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea... And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're getting to the end of the Holy Scriptures, which looks forward to the end of history. Uh, the whole Bible, uh, God's story of the history of humanity, it's bookended by incredibly important sections. You've got the first three chapters of Genesis in the beginning, and the last three chapters of Revelation here at the end. And themes that begin there in Genesis... They reverberate throughout the scriptures, and they grow to, to reach their crescendo here in these final chapters of Revelation. So the theme of creation, starting in Genesis, it culminates in the new creation. The theme of the fall of humanity into sin and all the exile is reversed as the new humanity is received into God's glorious presence. Uh, we lost the garden in the beginning, but in the end we're promised the garden city. We were barred from the tree of life, but it'll be granted again, the tree of life, for the healing of the nations. And the devil's war against God, for which he is cursed in Genesis 3, is brought to a complete end in God's swift judgment in Revelation 20 here. Ever since the devil deceived our first parents, humanity has been divided into two camps. Those who have joined the devil in his rebellion, and those who have been redeemed by God and rescued from the devil's camp. So it's those who are against Jesus and those who are with him. So the devil's last major campaign against the kingdom of God ended in uh, AD 70. Right? We've looked at that in past weeks in the book of Revelation. After he deceived the nations to unite in battle against Christ and the church. That alliance, that international alliance, was broken up when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the devil's ability to rally such forces uh, was arrested, right? So we looked at that last week. We considered the symbolic thousand years, the millennium, uh, during which time the devil has been really unable to deceive the nations on that kind of scale in order to unite them all against the kingdom of God in active persecution against the church. But, uh, but someday as it says in our passage in verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released and he will come out to deceive the nations to gather them for the, the battle, for the final battle. So this is not God's statistical analysis of the probability of the situation. This is God's plan for the future. This doesn't refer to the devil's jailbreak. He's to be released 
And obviously that means he's to be released by the command of the Lord himself. So that might be hard for some to accept that he works in such ways, but um, <clears throat> that, that his plan can include the workings of the devil himself. But the scriptures are full of examples like this. Uh, the holy God using his enemy's efforts against him. The greatest example of this is at the cross. Uh, it appeared that the devil had made arrangements for the crucifixion of Jesus. Right, The devil is the one who entered Judas and caused Judas to betray Jesus to the authorities and ended up on the cross for it. <clears throat> but ultimately, the scriptures say that it was God's plan that Jesus went to the cross and Jesus defeated the devil there through his loving sacrifice. It's the place the devil wanted Jesus to go was that cross to die. But Jesus turned that on him and defeated the devil through the atonement and the salvation of his people there. So actually it's encouraging to know that the, <clears throat> the enemy can do nothing at all apart from the sovereign will of the Lord. And that when the Lord does let him off his chain, it's only in order to triumph over him with glorious finality. So we don't know uh, when this will happen. The scriptures don't give us uh, really specific clues about a timeline for this. And really Jesus indicates that uh, trying to predict that time or having a fascination with trying to predict that time, it's a wrongheaded distraction from your relationship with Jesus. Uh, but I imagine it will be hard to miss it when that day arrives. Uh, when Satan is released for his final campaign, uh, it probably will look similar to the way that he worked against the early church in the first century. All the nations at that time, meaning uh, Gentiles and unbelieving Jews, they were together. So in the future, we expect on this day when he is released, all the nations, Gentiles and unbelieving Jews together, will buy into the devil's vision and array themselves against the church and think the world will be a better place without the church of Jesus Christ in it. So at that point, the United Nations will not be upset about human rights violations that are perpetrated against the church. They'll be the ones looking to eradicate us from the world, all the nations. Uh, it says in verse 8, Gog and Magog are first, uh, these, are, these are first seen in Ezekiel's prophecy in uh, <clears throat> chapters 38 and 39 of his prophecy. And they are enemy nations that are pitted against God's people to destroy God's people. And some people try to figure out whether these nations, uh, Gog and Magog, are they like Russia and China or whatever. Um, they're really representative of all nations who will end up making themselves enemies to Christ and his church. After all, it says clearly just before this in, in verse 8, they're from the four corners of the earth, which is biblical language for everywhere in the world. Right? That's what Gog and Magog represent, all the nations everywhere. Um, for clarification, the United States of America is destined to be one of those nations. No matter what you might hope for, for this nation that we live in, uh, politically or culturally, ultimately there's no hope for any nation except for the holy nation, the kingdom of priests, which is Christ's church. Um, so, so the fact that these nations will uh, include unbelieving Israel also is hinted at twice in our passage. Um, uh, 
it says in verse 8 that their number is like the sand of the sea, which that, that language echoes God's promise to Jacob, God's promise to the, the people of Israel that, that Jacob himself would have countless descendants like the sand of the sea. Right? And then when it says that Satan gathers them for the battle, the word for gather is the verb form of synagogue. So it says that Satan will synagogue the nations for the battle against the camp of the saints and the beloved city. It's the New Jerusalem, the, the people of God, uh, the people of Christ. So, so rather than uh, isolated flare-ups of persecution which the church has endured for 2,000 years <clears throat> as individual nations here and there become temporarily hostile to Christ's kingdom. Uh, rather than that, someday the whole world, again, will be actively and violently against us. But compared to <clears throat> the long and full era of the symbolic thousand years, right, the millennium that is uh, just before this, that day, we get the sense in this passage, uh, will be quite short. Because as soon as Satan gathers the nations for the battle, they suffer their defeat in the, in the final judgment of God. And without further delay, finally, after long eons of war, the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire, and that will be the end of him. He's got a lot of huff and puff and noise and bluster for, from him for millennia, but he'll be utterly powerless to avoid his fate. So, <clears throat> so what is this lake of fire? Um, considering all the symbolic in imagery of the book of Revelation, we probably can consider this to be symbolic as well. Uh, it might not be a literal lake, and it might not be composed of literal fire, burning material. But, uh, but it symbolizes, as a lake of fire, it symbolizes something that's very real, uh, it symbolizes a reality about which Jesus himself spoke with some frequency. It says in Matthew 25, which was our gospel reading <clears throat> that Rob read, um, Jesus calls it the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. <clears throat> so it's some sort of place, some different kind of place, some kind of uh, state of being that is characterized by eternal conscious torment, uh, a disintegration and an undoing of your created nature and purpose that never ends. It's a punishment of inescapable finality. So fire <clears throat> throughout the Bible, uh, it's not just a destructive force, a disintegrating and an undoing force. It actually represents the holiness of God. So as terrible as it, it might sound, uh, the lake of fire is a good and just and righteous punishment. Uh, in his good and perfect judgment, God has decided that this state of being should exist and that it should be the, the right and just fate of all of his enemies. In Revelation, it appears five times <clears throat> as the lake of fire. It's not just fire. It's a lake of fire. And I think that's meant to give us a picture. It's like a reservoir of maybe lava <clears throat> uh, seething deep inside a volcano where the enemy is trapped. You're trapped in a lake, drowning in, in his disintegration forever. And it isn't a boundless sea of fire, 
right? It's a lake. It's a contained place, constrained within clear boundaries, where the devil and his forces are permanently corralled and they're managed so that they can never rise up again against God and his people. So this is, this is talking about the absolute end of the devil's war against God. And even death itself will be cast into the lake of fire along with him, it says in verse 14. So God reveals this absolute dichotomy of those who are against him and those who are with him. There's no third category, right? There's those who are against him, those who are with him. And he reveals that those who are against him will be brought to this absolute end on that day. So many call it judgment day, uh, the, the last day of the old earth, the old heaven, the old fallen, broken, rebellious world. It says in verse 11 that uh, the great throne of God is white, and that symbolizes the perfect purity and holiness of God's judgment. It says, from his presence, earth and heaven will flee away. And since there will be nowhere to flee from his presence, no place will be found for them because his presence is everywhere. So in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And in the end, on the last day, the first earth and heaven will be altogether gone from reality. They'll vanish without a trace. And John will see a new heaven and a new earth in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week. But this, this is the time of the judgment at the end of the first creation. This is the time of the, the resurrection of all the dead, all the people who ever lived, Jew or Gentile or whatever, from any nation, all people who ever lived being raised to bodily immortality, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, either those to those departing on his left <clears throat> to eternal punishment or those on his right into eternal life. So the complete record of every action of every individual, every person, is taken into account in this judgment, in God's righteous judgment. It says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire with the devil and his forces and death and hell itself. So Daniel had seen uh, these same books that are being talked about here in Daniel chapter 7 in his vision of God's judgment. Right. So, um, so God keeps books. That's probably symbolic. Again, it's not necessarily that things are written on paper or parchment with ink, right? But God, God keeps books. God keeps an account. He keeps a precise record. It's actually impossible for him to forget anything you or I have ever done. Those things don't just disappear into the annals of history. Our actions are not morally neutral. Our actions all have significance to God, and he counts them all as either good or evil or some mixture of both. That is to say, everything we do ultimately has reference to God, has reference to his person or persons. Um, Everything we do ultimately has reference to, to his purposes for our lives. Everything we do is relevant to our relationship with him as our creator, as our Lord, as the fountain and the center of being. So you might have forgotten what you did last week. You might have blocked out of your memory what you did 20 years ago. 
but all your thoughts and all your actions are in the books, so to speak. And God, in his holiness, will judge you according to all of them. But there's one more book, right? It's a different kind of book. This book is not full of actions. This book is full of names, just names. And that is the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a record of the names of all those who trust in Christ, all those who persevere in faith and in faithfulness to the Lamb. It's a record of the names of those who are with Jesus rather than against him. Simple as that. It's a record of the names of those who are with Jesus rather than against him. So if you think that maybe cleaning up the record of your actions as they appear in all those books will uh, help you in any way, you're wrong. The only thing it says here, the only thing that matters is whether your name is cross-referenced in the Lamb's Book of Life. So no, no matter what you might think about your moral record before God, apart from being found in the Book of Life, we're all judged as worthy of a lake of fire. So the only reason you wouldn't be sent into the lake of fire with the devil and his forces of darkness is if you're found to be with Jesus and for Jesus, if your name is in his book, in the Lamb's book of life. That means Jesus himself, he's the fulcrum of your judgment. Jesus is the rock upon which all the waves of reality break. It's it's your relationship with Jesus that determines whether, uh, as he says in Matthew 25, you go to his left or to his right. It's your relationship with Jesus that determines whether you depart into eternal fire along with all the enemies of God or are welcome into eternal life in God's presence. It's your relationship with Jesus that determines whether you fall forever with the forces who opposed him and who opposed his love or rise to inherit the kingdom of God in the new heaven and the new earth. You can't clean up what's written about you in the books. You can't even write your own name in the book. You can only relate to Jesus. So do you know Jesus as he's revealed in the good news, in the Gospels? Do you want to know him more? Are you interested in him? Do you believe that Jesus is the only good Lord? Do you submit to his judgment and his word? Do you cherish the forgiveness that Jesus has secured for you at the cross? Are you cheered by the power of his resurrection, his power over death? Are you reassured by the heavenly welcome that you receive in his name, among his people? Do you thrill at the expectation of seeing Jesus with your own eyes? Because you will see him with your own eyes. Do you celebrate and confess Jesus before others? Do you want your whole life and all your relationships to be ruled by your relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit? Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God who came to be with us. Are you with him? Let's pray. Father, your thoughts and your ways are higher than ours. 
in our finiteness and in our fallenness, we're often unable to think very clearly about you and about your kingdom, about your son, and about our life. But you have spoken clearly enough, so we pray that your spirit would clear away the fog and the smoke from our minds. That you would soften our hearts, that you would quicken us and make us alive to you. That you would not only draw us to Jesus for relationship, but that you would keep us in that relationship. Keep us in your love forever. Pray that you would grant us the perseverance of faith. Pray that you would grant us the assurance of hope that because of your mercy one day at the end of the war, we will find ourselves standing with you forever to our great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.